The following is audio from The Refuge Church. Every sermon is an invitation to understand, obey, and enjoy God. More information about The Refuge Church is available at therefugechurch.us. Do we really need to be saved? Um, Carrie used, she said I was saved from. Uh, This is what the second humanist manifesto says. It says, no deity will save us, we must save ourselves. Paul Kurtz, a leading humanist, said, secular humanists reject the idea that God has intervened miraculously in history or that he can save or redeem sinners. Do we really need to be saved? Or... um, Can we really um, not just pull ourselves up our own bootstraps? (laughs) Um, Aren't we really good people that just need to work together at being a little better? Um, What is this salvation that um, we make a big deal of? Um, Or maybe even we who claim that salvation is important, um, maybe we, we even get confused about it. Think about this scenario. This is a beautiful salvation scenario. Well, imagine we're on a California beach and a, a beautiful girl is drowning. We know that because, you know, the kind of, kind of panoramas on her, her hair is flowing even as she's bobbing up and down in the water. A handsome, tanned lifeguard who already had his eye on her hears her cries for help he springs into action you know flexing his muscles uh, in two quick strokes he covers a hundred yards of 50 foot waves <laughs> swiftly bringing her to sh- to the shore to the cheers of his adoring fans isn't, that, isn't salvation beautiful? And that's, I mean, she was rescued. Uh, oh, I forgot. And then the two of them fall in love and get married. Isn't that salvation at its best? Um, thinking about salvation or, or rescuing or being delivered, uh, uh, the eastern coast of the United States is really getting pummeled right now. Um, I mean, just historic torrential rains, catastrophic flooding. I looked this morning, um, at least 11 people already have uh, died. Um, Imagine yourself in that setting. Um, You and your family have been rescued. Um, You're in a boat and you're motoring towards dry ground when you hear a cry for help. Somebody, save me. And so you motor carefully closer, and you see a man desperately clinging to some floating debris, uh, just clinging to life, and he clearly cannot save himself, or he will drown. Uh, The problem is there's no room in your boat. Your whole family is in the boat, and its load weight is about 400 pounds, and altogether, you're about 500 pounds, and the water is just barely not going over the top of the boat. What do you do? Well, you make a quick decision. You dive into the water. You help the man into the boat with your family and urge them to motor quickly for sure. That is, that is the salvation, the biblical salvation we're talking about. To be honest, as I, as I thought about it and wrote down that scenario, it actually revolted me. I mean, thinking of doing, making that choice to do that. <laughs> to leave the boat that I was in with my family to dive into the water, help another, a stranger into that boat that I know nothing about and save him 
at the cost of my own life. Uh, salvation. Can we save ourselves? I mean, the girl drowning in the ocean, the man clinging to the floating debris. I mean, human beings like you and I, I mean, we know. We can try to be better people. We can try to make the most of ourselves. But if we're honest with ourselves, we know the yuck that's within us, right? <laughs> the stuff that we can't do anything about, the stuff, the, the bitterness, the lust, the greed, the pride. Um, salvation. We are a people in huge need of salvation. Probably one of the most well-known questions in the Bible is that of the Philippian jailer. Um, he's just finished flogging Paul and Silas, uh, gave him a good beating and thrown him into his dungeon. And he's expecting a good night's sleep. And then he hears these two guys in his dungeon at the top of their lungs singing praises to God. Is there anything more annoying than people being happy when you want them to be miserable? Yeah. <laughs> and, and so they're just singing praises to God. And in the middle of their praising God, there's this massive earthquake. All the jail doors are thrown open. He knows that he's toast that Rome is going to put him to death because of the prisoners that are freed. And so at the moment when he's ready to kill himself, Paul and Silas cry out, we're all here. And he's incredulous. How could it be that all of these prisoners who have nothing to expect except torture, if they stay in jail, remain there? Uh, and so in a moment of just brokenness, this Mr. Macho Roman soldier who thought he needed nothing, needed no one, he had the world, um, he cries out, what must I do to be saved? I mean, and what is he crying? He says, man, what do I need to do to, for this wretchedness and this ugliness inside of me? Uh, I mean, he had everything on the outside. He was tough. He was like this mix between an army ranger and a navy seal and a ninja or something. I mean, he, he didn't need anybody, but in this moment he realized who he really was and how desperately he needed saving. He says, what must I do to be saved? And Paul and Silas' simple answer to him was, um, just try harder. Right? <laughs> was uh, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. What must you do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Uh, what must I do? Well, kind of as a, the flip side of that, this morning as we go to the book of John, we're going to ask the question, not what must I do to be saved, but what must be done to be saved? What is it that needed to be done in order for us to be saved? And if you paid attention to the, the, the songs, just thinking about them, I mean, I mean if, if we get anything from this morning, I just want us to be afresh amazed by the salvation that is ours. Because I think sometimes we become a people who almost think that we just need to work at being better people. We forget that salvation isn't about reformation. It's not just about good people becoming better, but it's about transformation. It's about dead people becoming alive. For we were dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians. And then we were made alive with Christ. That's salvation. That's it's blind people who can't see and who thought, this is silly, this salvation thing. We don't need to be saved. No deity is going to save us. And then all of a sudden we see. Our hearts are hard towards God, and then all of a sudden something happens and they're soft towards God. Um, what must be done to be saved? The first thing, if you're taking notes, is something supernatural has to happen. 
And we're going to go to John chapter 3. We're going to start with verses 1 to 12. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. So he was one of the top 70 Jewish leaders. And he came to Jesus at night, which is interesting. And he said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. And so just before we move on, now a Pharisee, that means he was one of these guys who Jesus described as straining out a gnat. You know, that's like one of those obnoxious fruit flies uh, that I almost wrecked our car driving to Tacoma the other day as there was a fruit fly in the car and I was, it, it was driving me crazy. Um, they would strain out gnats but swallow camels, Jesus said. I mean, they were just these nitpicky, strict guys. They were all about you got to keep the law. And then they added things. you got to keep this. you got to do that. In order to have a relationship with God, you got to keep the law. Um, and so he was a leader of those people. It's interesting. He came to Jesus at night, though, which shows not only was he strict about keeping the law, thinking that keeping the law was the way to be righteous, but he's sincere. You know, he's not coming to Jesus during the day seeking to trap him like the Pharisees typically were doing. So he's coming to Jesus at night sincerely saying, Rabbi, we know you're a good guy. We know you're from God, for no one could perform the signs you're doing if God were not with him. It's interesting how Jesus responds. Jesus says, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Does that have anything to do with what Nicodemus just said? Nothing. This is a, and I've said this before, Jesus is a great example of how to respond to people. Nicodemus is saying, Jesus, we know that you're a good guy and you came from God. And Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, this is how you can have a relationship with God. No one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Nicodemus says, how can someone be born when they are old? And now this guy's a leader, right? One of the top 70. And he, he just can't wrap his mind around this. How can someone be born when they're old? And then he makes this incredible statement. He says, surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Can you imagine the pain that he was thinking about at that point? I mean, it's incredible. He's an adult, and he says, surely he can't like, you know, it's kind of like, honey, I shrunk the kids or something. Um, He just can't wrap his mind because in his thinking, salvation is something that he can achieve by keeping the law, by being good, by helping old guys like me across the street. Um, Verse 5. Jesus answers, and, and I guess, if anything, the way Jesus responds, it tells us there are no dumb questions, right? <laughs> I mean, there can't be much of a dumber question than Nicodemus asked. And Jesus just responds by saying, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. And he still, he just, how can this be, he asks. And Jesus says, you're Israel's teacher? And do you not understand these things? Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. And it's interesting how it goes into the plural. I just ask you to consider what what Jesus means when Jesus says we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. Who is he talking about there? But still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you 
believe if I speak of heavenly things. And so Jesus very gently in, in responding to Nicodemus, he's saying, what must be done to be saved? Something supernatural must need to be done. It's not a matter of keeping the law, of being a better person. Of It's something supernatural. And the imagery is great here. There's, there's five things that I, that I wrote down that, that are in this passage. The one where he says, you must be born again. August 18th, 1854, uh, 1954, I was born. Uh, about August 1970, I don't know exactly, I was born again. I was saved. I mean, God opened my eyes, and for the first time I realized I needed Jesus. I was a sinner, and I was lost. And I was on my way to an eternity without Jesus and it was just like my eyes were opened and my heart was softened and I was born again for the second time. There's an interesting thing about the word born again, though. It can also, if, if you have an NIV version, it says that again can also be translated above. The word can be translated born from above. So literally, on August 18, 1954, I was born because of my parents, right? It was physical. But around August 1970, I was born because of something God did. It was supernatural. It says, Jesus is born of water. Everyone is born of, born of water. Every expecting couple, right, understands what that means when the baby's about ready to happen the water breaks, right? And so there's this physical born of water and there's born of the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh. Spirit gives birth to spirit. There's the earthly and there's the heavenly. And Jesus in speaking to Nicodemus is trying to make it so clear to him that what must be done to be saved is something that is supernatural. It's not something we can do. It's not something you can do. It's not bettering ourselves. It's becoming new people supernaturally. We need God to be saved. Um, just before we move on, I just want to ask, do you recognize your need to be saved? That salvation isn't something you can do. You, I, it's got to be something God does on your behalf. Salvation is supernatural. Salvation is also, as we go to verse 13 in John chapter 3, this is incredible. Salvation is also substitutional. What must be done to be saved? For us to be saved, something substitutional needed to happen. Um, Jesus continued on in talking to Nicodemus and he said, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man, and he's speaking about himself. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. To, to kind of say it tritely, we can go up because Jesus came down. That's what he's saying here. Heaven is possible because heaven became a person. Um, and that person, Jesus, paid an incredible price. Second um, Corinthians 8, 9, two of my favorite verses. Second Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. He became poor, he who was rich, so that we in our poverty, in our spiritual poverty and neediness and brokenness might become rich, might become right with God. Second Corinthians 5.21. If you haven't memorized this by now, shame on you anyway. This is a great verse. God made him, Jesus, 
who had no sin to be sin for us. That's the substitution so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. That is a deal. That's better than any deal you will ever get mailed to you in the mail. <laughs> Substitution. About three years ago, uh, we had a, a play day in Paulsbo for the, the Paulsbo Oasis Center. It was at a park. And one of the things that happened was a, uh, a basketball tournament. So I went over to watch the basketball tournament. Those of you know, that know Daryl uh, had put together a, a coffee oasis team to compete in the tournament. Uh, Daryl is an incredible basketball player. So as I'm standing there at the fence watching, one of their players didn't show up. Yeah. So Daryl looks at me. <laughs> Uh, you know, these are guys in their teens and 20s. I'm a little older than that. And so Daryl says, we can't play if, you know, you don't substitute. <laughs> so I did. I wish it was like the first illustration I gave, you know, that I came in and <laughs> they'd never seen such incredible basketball talent. I mean, like they started calling me Michael Jordan or LeBron James, and we lost. <laughs> and uh, I was not a savior that day. <laughs> I, was, I was not the substitute that they needed. But <laughs> I want you to look at numbers with me. This is what Jesus is quoting and it's incredible. We're going to just start at verse 4. Uh, these are the Israelites. They, they're traveling from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. The people grew impatient. They spoke against God and against Moses. And they said, why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? They're making some serious accusations against God. There's no bread. There's no water. We detest this miserable food. God, you are... You don't care about us. You are no God. Um, so the Lord sent poisonous snakes among them, and they bit the people, and many Israelites died. And the people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. And God's provision is incredible. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said, Make a snake... This is what was biting them, what was killing them. Make a snake and put it on a pole. And anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. And so what is killing them, they're putting on the pole and looking at it, they can live. And so Moses made a bronze snake. He put it up on a pole so that anyone bitten by a snake, looking at the bronze snake, lived. If we can go back to John chapter 3 verse 15 please just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness so the son of man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him it's an incredible picture an incredible picture of Jesus it's 2 Corinthians 5:21 being worked out in front of our eyes as Jesus is lifted up as what is killing us, our sin, putting us to death, leading us to eternal separation from God. Jesus hanging on the cross is, is like looking at that snake that is killed. And we, we look at Jesus not as some amazing person, not as some good person, some good teacher, but as sin, as what is killing us, as hanging there dying so that we don't have to die, that looking at him and believing him in him is the answer to our sin, as the one who's receiving punishment for our sin, that we don't have to be punished for it. We can have life that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Isn't that incredible? What must done be done for us to be saved? It's this substitution. 
something that we couldn't do for ourselves as sinners. We needed the sinless Son of God to hang there as sin in our place, become sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Uh, salvation is supernatural. We can't do it. We can't cleanse our own hearts. We can't make right our relationships with God. It was done for us by Jesus. The third thing, as we go on, just finally, verses 16 to 18 in John, what must be done to be saved? I'm, I'm saying something irrational. Not just something supernatural or substitutional, but something irrational. Look at this. Um, if you have a red letter edition, th these, it's not red up here, but if you have, your Bible is red letter, meaning the words of Jesus are in red, they stopped at verse 15. So verse 16 is where John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, comments on what Jesus said earlier. For... God so loved the world, meaning because, he's saying, it's almost like he's anticipating a question, why in the world would Jesus do that? Why in the world would God go through that for our salvation? And John says, because God loved us so much. Because God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. The world was already condemned. Those people are, remember the Israelites? They're being killed by those snakes. We're being killed by our sin. Our sin is killing us. Jesus came to hang on the cross as an answer to what was killing us. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already. The sin that is killing them will just keep killing them because they refuse to believe in God's only answer for our sin, Jesus. You know, um, that's why I call it irrational. I mean, think about it. I'm not calling God irrational, but this is crazy, right? It's like me. I mean, honestly, how revolted I was just thinking about diving out of the boat with my family to save a stranger. That's our God. That's crazy. It's kind of like me and what people called me or us when I took our young family to the Philippines to live among a 100% 100, 100 Muslim, rebel-controlled, gunfire every day, interrogated for months, uh, place in the Philippines with a master's degree in theology. And people said, what a waste. That is irrational. That's crazy. the crazy things I did courting my wife. <laughs> That's love, right? You know, the Bible makes it really clear that God's supernatural plan of saving us through Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice on the cross was his plan for eternity. It was no rash, momentary decision that God made. But when you look at that love, like the love that sent us to the Philippines, outsiders look at that and kind of say, that's crazy. Same people don't do that. Same people don't jump out of boats to save strangers. It's not about what God's love is, but how it appears. And so one of the songs we sing, the never-ending what does it say? Never-ending, overwhelming, reckless love of God. One of my favorite authors disapproves of that word, but I disagree with him. Because it's not God being reckless, but us looking at that love and saying, that is crazy. 
That is crazy. That is the love of our God. I just want us to read John 3, 16 through 18 one more time and just be amazed by God's love. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. The world, his world, has gone bonkers, right? Sin is rampant everywhere. God's beautiful creation is in disarray, rebellious, broken, marred, a world that rightly deserves to be damned, right? Every one of us. What was to be done about the sin, the enemy within, as Daniel described it a few weeks ago? The sin whose end is death, separation from God and real life, real hope, real peace, a sin that only a sinless God could do something about by becoming sin in our place on the cross to pay its consequence, its death, and purchase our salvation. Is that not crazy love? (laughs) Not crazy? Uh, Dear people, that's what our neighbors, our family, our friends, our co-workers, that's, that's the salvation that people need to see. Not just us being people that are trying to be better people, live better, but people who realize that salvation is supernatural. It's substitutional. It's crazy. It's irrational. And that's the salvation that God longs for us to live out in our daily lives. Let's pray. Father, Thank you so much for so great a salvation. Father, just continue, I pray, daily to make us amazed about the Savior that you are. In Jesus' name, amen. So Carrie used the phrase, she said, I was saved from a life of darkness, addiction, trauma. Um, We use the word salvation, saved. Um, The question is, do we really need to be saved? I mean, the people in Turkey, they're going... um, do they really need to be saved? Um, can't they just pull themselves up by their own bootstraps? Can't they, aren't they just good people that need to be, become better? Um, Daniel going to the Basque people. Um, in the Second Humanist Manifesto, it says, no deity will save us. We must save ourselves. And I read, a, I think it was just two weeks ago, that 27% of the United States now would call themselves secular humanists. No deity will save us. We must save ourselves. Do we really need to be saved? Um, Paul Kurtz, a leading humanist, said, Secular humanists reject the idea that God has intervened miraculously in history or that he can save or redeem sinners. Can we save ourselves? Um, 
So we're going to talk about salvation this morning, and we're going to talk about a, a really familiar passage, John 3, 1 to 18. And as we do it, I really want you to be thinking, uh, just wrestling with this, uh, is this the stuff, I mean, we can pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, we can reform, we can change, but the stuff that's within, the stuff that we struggle with, the bitterness, the unforgiveness, the pride, the lust, the anger, is that something that we can save ourselves from? Um, I hope that as we come to the end of this day, we're going we're gonna to just realize how incredibly amazing salvation is. The salvation that is ours in Jesus and that apart from Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice on the cross, in our place, dying on the cross, there would not be hope. There would not be hope. Um, you know, as we think of salvation, I want you to imagine a scenario. It's kind of a, a beautiful scenario. And actually, after the first gathering, Zach told me that a friend of his, this almost replicated um, his friend's situation. I want you to imagine you're on a beach in California and a beautiful girl is drowning, okay? I mean, we know she's beautiful because the camera is focusing on her and how gorgeous she is. So she's drowning, and now a handsome, well-tanned lifeguard um, who already had his eye on her um, hears her cry for help and, you know, springs into action, you know, kind of flexes his muscles. And, and then with two quick strokes, he swims 100 yards through 50-foot waves and rescues her, saves her. It's beautiful. And they fall in love and get married. Isn't that salvation? It's, it's beautiful. It's just so beautiful. Well, as I was thinking about salvation, I thought about uh, just the horrible rain and flooding that's going on in the Carolinas right now. Um, this morning I saw there's already 11 people that have died from just the torrential rains and the, the flooding. I want you to imagine that you're there and your family has escaped from your home and you're in a boat and you're motoring towards dry ground. As you're motoring towards dry ground, you hear this, help, save me. And you motor closer to where you hear the sound coming from, and there's a man. He's clinging to some floating debris, uh, desperately crying out for somebody to save him. I mean, what do you do? Um, your family's in the boat. The, the weight load of the boat is 400 pounds. And with your family, it's probably 500 pounds. And the water is almost coming over the edges of the boat. And this guy is crying for help. Without thinking, maybe, or just making a quick decision, you dive into the water out of the boat you help this absolute stranger into the boat with your family and, and just exhort them to, to go to shore. Um, I think that's salvation. I mean, even as I wrote this yesterday, honestly, it revolted me writing it. Thinking of jumping out of a boat and the safety of that boat with my family for a stranger, giving my life for a stranger to go to safety and giving my life for them. It just, the thought of having to make that choice, absolutely, it, it just turned my stomach. Um, I want you to think about that for a moment. I think that's salvation. That's biblical salvation. You know, one of the uh, probably wo most well-known questions 
that is asked in the Bible is by the Philippian jailer. He's just this hard core macho Roman soldier, kind of a blend between a Navy SEAL, an Army Ranger, a ninja, a samurai. I mean, that's, that's this guy. I mean, you're looking at him right here. No, and so he has just finished flogging Paul and Silas. They're beaten, they're bloodied, and he throws them into a dungeon. And feeling good, he settles down for a, a good night's sleep. What happens next is all of a sudden he's awakened by these two guys that he's thrown into a dungeon and beaten to a pulp. They're singing at the top of their lungs praises to God. Can there be anything so annoying? I mean, people that are happy that you want to be miserable. And so they're singing and then there's this earthquake. All the prison doors are opened. All the prisoners are free to go and he's about ready to kill himself because he knows that if when, when Rome hears that all of his prisoners have fled, that his life is ended. And so about ready to take his life, he hears Paul and Silas cry out, don't, don't kill yourself. We're all here. Meaning all the prisoners, none of them have fled. And at that moment, it's like this Roman soldier who had the world by the tail. Nothing was too hard for him. He was Mr. Macho. I can do anything. I can save myself. At that moment, his, the wretchedness and neediness of his life, it just caves in on him as he, as he sees and hears Paul and Silas and, and what has happened. And he just cries out, what must I do to be saved? What must, what must I do to be like you? What must I do to take care of this wretchedness and neediness inside of me that I, I thought I had a handle on, but I realized that I need salvation. I need deliverance. I need rescuing. What must I do? What must you do to be saved? And Paul and Silas' simple answer is try harder. It's okay to laugh. That was really a ridiculous answer. I mean, uh, their simple answer is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You will be saved if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. What must I do is his question. As we're going to look at John 3 this morning and salvation, we're going to kind of look at the flip side of that question and we're going to ask what must be done to be saved. In order for us to say, what must I do to be saved? There had to be something done for us to be saved. And this is a familiar passage, but it's incredible. And I hope that we can look beyond the familiarity to see just this incredible salvation that is ours. What must be done to be saved? The first thing is something supernatural needed to be done for us to be saved. There was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. And so right, right off we see this guy Nicodemus. He's one of the top 70 leaders of the Jewish community. And he's a Pharisee, meaning he's, he's a man that lives by the strict following of the law. In fact, the Pharisees have added all kinds of rules and regulations to the law and so for Nicodemus following the law is the way to be righteous and uh, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel is how Jesus described them so he comes to Jesus at night and I think which is significant because it shows that he sincerely wants to just talk to Jesus he's not one of the Pharisees that is just out to trap him but he realizes that Jesus has something that he, he needs. He says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you're doing if God were not with him. And so he sees Jesus as someone from God, but he's caught up in this way of thinking that if I'm going to be saved, I've got to save myself by following the law and, 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 and doing what is good. 
the beautiful thing about Jesus is, is Jesus hardly ever responds to what someone is saying or asking, but Jesus kind of goes for the juggler. He knows what a person needs. And Jesus replies by saying, you know, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. That's not what Nicodemus was asking. Nicodemus is saying, I think you're a good guy. And Jesus says, if you want to be good, you got to be born again. Which leads to a really hilarious dialogue. Nicodemus, he's, re- he's one of the top 70 teachers in Israel. And he says, how can someone be born when they are old? I just want you to know there are no dumb questions, okay? Really. I mean, this is like, this is like a guy with a PhD, a THD, an ED, MD, you know, he's got them all. And he says, he doesn't have a clue. And then he makes this statement. He says, surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Can you imagine the pain? Uh, I mean, men, we can understand better, probably. Um, <laughs> whoa, it's just, it's, I just wanted to see if you women were awake. Good job. All right. <laughs> okay, I'm going to leave it. I'm going to. I'm going to move on. This is like honey. I shrunk the kids, right? Surely they cannot enter us. He doesn't have a clue what Jesus is talking about because he's totally thinking of salvation as something that is natural, something that he can accomplish by following the law, by being good, by helping old guys like me across the street, you know? Verse 5. Jesus answers, you know, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the Spirit. And, and Jesus is going to go on now and just give several illustrations to reveal that Salvation is supernatural. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Um, Every expecting couple should understand what the first part of this means. As, As a woman is about ready to give birth, what is one of the first things that happens? Their water breaks, right? Unless they're born of water, that's the and the spirit. It's both a, it's a fleshly thing. Verse 6, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. So we have this natural birth, and then we have this supernatural birth. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. August 18th, in case you want to write this down, for next year, 1954, I was born. Somewhere around August 1970, I was born again. I was supernaturally born. The word born again also can be translated born from above. You should not be surprised at my saying to you, you must be born from above. It was my mom and dad that through whom I came into this world. I was born from below, naturally. It was supernaturally that I've been born from above. And then it says, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. It's this mysterious, supernatural work that I can't understand or explain. How as a teenager, I went from I don't need God to I need him. To where our hearts go from being hard to soft, to where we go from, as it says in Ephesians chapter 2, dead in our trespasses and sins, separated from God, to alive in Christ, from being blind and, and we can't see and, 
and, and all this seems foolish, what I'm talking about, and maybe for some of you this morning, it's like, that is weird. To where by God's grace, someday you're going to say, that is amazing. <laughs> this mysterious, supernatural work of the Spirit of God. And Nicodemus, he says in verse 9, how can this be? And, and I don't know, can we even answer it? How can this be? Just this gracious, supernatural work of God that turns dead people to living people, blind people to people that can see. Jesus says, you're Israel's teacher and you do not understand these things. Truly I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. And just in passing to get your thinking, but I want you to stay focused on me, is who is Jesus referring to there? We speak of what we know. We testify to what we have seen. But still you people do not accept our testimony. Interesting. Verse 12. Jesus says, I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? We must be born again. We must be born from above. Salvation is supernatural. We can't save ourselves. If you're here this morning and you still think you can save yourself, that you can, you can, you can do it, I don't think you understand the depths of your neediness. You think, man, I can make the outside look good. I can get a job. I can buy new clothes. I can... But the inside, it's out of the heart, the Bible says, that the stuff comes that we need to be saved from. Question, do you recognize your need of salvation? So what must be done to be saved? It, 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 it's not just something supernatural, but as we come to verses 13 to 15, it's also something... I'm going to call it substitutional. Um, notice it says, Jesus continues, he says, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man, speaking about himself. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. You know, to put it simply, I think what Jesus is saying is, we can go up because he came down. Heaven is possible because heaven became a person. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. This is a great verse. I just want you to just think about it. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, he's the creator of the universe, he's almighty God, enjoying the worship of angels, that's rich. That's way more rich than Jeff Bezos, okay? If you don't know, he, he's the guy that he runs a McDonald's station somewhere, no. He's the head of Amazon. Anyway, worth about $160 billion, that's, that's nothing compared to this rich. But Jesus, for our sakes, became poor so that we in our poverty might become rich. And 2 Corinthians 5.21 describes it. I should actually make you all close your eyes and quote this because you should have it memorized by now. If you don't, that's your assignment after you leave. God made Jesus, who had no sin, the sinless Son of God, to be sin for us so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. That's it. Salvation is substitutional. If we can go to Numbers, the, the, the story that Jesus referred to, this is it right here. The Israelites are traveling from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom because Edom has told them they can't go through their land. But notice the people grew impatient on the way. They were always impatient, grumbling, complaining. They're speaking against God and against Moses, and they're saying, 
Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread, there's no water. We detest this miserable food. And, and you know, they're just like us, right? <laughs> I mean, day after day, month after month, year after year, they've seen God miraculously, supernaturally provide manna every day, quails by the million, water out of a rock. But again, they're just rebelling against God and saying, you don't care about us. And so the Lord sent poisonous snakes among them and they bit the people and many of them died. So the people came to Moses and said, we sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And then we get this that that Jesus uh, refers to in John chapter 3. The Lord said to Moses, and this is crazy, make a snake and put it up on a pole. So what is killing them? They're to make a bronze replica of it and put it on the pole so that anyone who is bitten by a snake can look at this snake and live. And so Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole so that when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. How many people you thought, that is stupid, right? (laughs) You look at a snake on a pole and I'm going to live? That almost sounds as crazy as salvation, right? So if we go back to John chapter 3, I mean, what a beautiful picture. John chapter 3, verse 15 or 14, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up in the same way so that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. And and how do we have eternal life in him? By looking to Jesus in the same way that they look to that snake. What does that mean? 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might be righteous. I mean, it's incredible. So Jesus hanging on the cross, he's hanging there as sin. He's hanging there in our place being punished for our sins so that we don't have to be punished. So we look at him and we believe in him as the substitutionary sacrifices, the one who died in our place, who was punished in our place, who died in our place. We look at him on the cross as sin, our sin hanging there, and we're saved by looking to Jesus. That everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Isn't that incredible what God did for our salvation that's the third thing I just want us to see briefly as we go to verse 16 what must be done to be saved it's not just something supernatural but it is we, we cannot save ourselves we cannot root the sin out of our hearts we cannot bridge our separation from the creator of the universe it had to be God that does it And it had to be him doing it as sin in our place, as taking our punishment. So it's something supernatural, something super... But the the end result as we come to verse 16 is that really it's something irrational. It's crazy. Verse 16 starts with the word for. And and what what for is there for? It's to explain. It's it's almost answering the anticipated question: Why in the world would God do that? <laughs> why in the world would God just not say, "Forget you people, damn you people"? It's because He loves us so much. That's it. For God love the world so much that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world 
but to save the world through him. You know, the, the snake hanging on the pole wasn't to condemn them. It was, it was providing them salvation, right? And Jesus hanging on the cross was for our salvation, not our condemnation. So whoever believes in him is not condemned, who looks to him and hopes in him as our, as our sacrifice. But whoever does not believe, whoever does not look to Jesus like the Israelites who did not look to that snake, sin will keep killing. Sin will keep separating. There won't be salvation because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son, God's provision for our salvation. Salvation is irrational, really. <laughs> um, I mean, think about it. Uh, like I said, the, the, the picture that really revolted me as I wrote it yesterday, the thought of me jumping out of a boat and the safety of my family to save a stranger. Think of the irrationality of Cindy and I taking our, our two young children at that time to the Philippines to live among a 100% Muslim rebel-controlled area where we were interrogated for months and heard gunfire and bombing it. Why would we do that? That's, we were told by people, you're crazy. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's irrational. I can think of the crazy things love made me do when I was courting Cindy. <laughs> um, yeah, I think you understand that. You know, the Bible makes it really clear that God's supernatural plan for saving us through Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice on the cross was God's eternal plan. This was no rash spur-of-the-moment decision like, oh my goodness, somebody's got to do something, I'll do it. It was his eternal plan. So God's love isn't reckless or irrational or crazy, but as we view it, as people might have viewed us going to the Philippines because of God's love motivating us and driving us to share the good news of Jesus with Muslims there. Looking at God's love hanging on the cross as our sin, that's crazy, isn't it? That's irrational. You could call it reckless. Never ending, I forgot this, the first gathering, overwhelming, reckless love of God. You ever sang that song? Yeah. Never-ending, overwhelming, reckless love of... That's not describing God. But we look at this love. If we don't think it's crazy, then we don't get it. How supernatural and substitutional our God is that in our place he would die and take our punishment and bear our sin so that we could be saved. We who cannot save ourselves. You know, the world, his world had gone bonkers. Sin, it's rampant everywhere. God's beautiful creation is in disarray, rebellious, broken, marred. I mean, read the newspaper. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you know, you need to get out more. Um, a world that God rightfully should say about every one of us, forget you. What was to be done about the sin, the enemy within, as Daniel described it a few weeks ago, the sin whose end is death, separation from God, and real life, real joy, real peace, not something temporary or fleeting, a fix. It was something that only our sinless God could do, and he did it for us in a way that we never could do by going to the cross and hanging there as our sin in our place so that we could be saved, so that we could be righteous in right relationship with God. That's crazy. Dear people, that's the salvation that the world 
needs to hear. That's the salvation that we need to be talking about with one another, not just, come on, we got to be better people. we got to, you know, we got to... It, it's not about reforming. It's about transforming. It's not about being better people, but it's about being new people, born again, born from above, supernaturally new people because the Spirit of God has opened our eyes to see Jesus and fall in love with him and cry out to him to save us. Man, our friends, our family, our neighbors, our coworkers, they need Jesus. I mean, if we don't share with them this salvation, they will not be saved. They will not be saved. People, people need the Lord. The world needs to see and hear this kind of salvation. Supernatural, substitutional, and irrational. <laughs> Let's pray. God, you are so amazing. Your love does not make sense how you could love us so much that you would go through what you've gone through for us in order that we might be saved. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes, even right now, just like help us to see, help us to be amazed how great is our salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.